Hello and welcome to Feminist Fridays, your weekly intersectional dose of self-empowerment and equality. I'm your host, Sarah Liberty, coming to your airwaves from Sydney. This week we have a guest who is coming to our airwaves all the way from Texas. Her name is Froswa Booker-Drew, PhD, who is a network weaver who believes relationships are the key to our personal professional and organisational growth. With an extensive background in leadership, non-profit management, philanthropy, partnership development, training and education, I'm sure she's going to share some words of wisdom with us today. But before we meet Froswa, we're going to kick off with a track by Daniel Johns and Peking Duck called Cocaine Killer. Not because we advocate drug use here at Feminist Fridays, but because I've had a crush on Daniel Johns since his Frog Stomp album, Silver Chair Days. Baby, I'm a cool. 
Josla, welcome to Feminist Fridays. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. <laughs> I'm so excited to hear a Texan accent. <laughs> I'm doing the same thing with you all. I'm just like, they sound amazing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we can enjoy each other's voices. That's great. I love it. So I wanted to start by asking where you grew up and what your early influences were. So I actually grew up in Shreveport, Louisiana, oh. and I was really fortunate because I grew up around my immediate family. My grandparents were very um, instrumental in my life, along with my mom and dad. And so I was in a space where I had so much love and I had people around me who didn't always have a lot of resource, but I saw them giving and being involved in the church and in the local community, just giving. And I didn't realize as a kid how that was going to shape my trajectory of the work that I ultimately ended up, you know, and, and, and I'm doing now. Mm, it's, yeah, it's very interesting when you think about uh, when you're exposed to things like that, just as you're growing up. I have been to the Deep South, by the way. I've been to Louisiana. I've been to New Orleans. Um, love that part of the, of the world. It's an amazing place. Shreveport is about four hours from New Orleans. It's mm -hmm. North Louisiana, which is very close in culture to Texas. So um, even though I am from the state, people make fun of me here and say it's really East Texas that I grew up in. So, uh, Okay. <laughs> so you have an extensive background in leadership, nonprofit management, philanthropy, partnership development, training and education. But before mm -hmm. we get into that, I'm curious to know what led you to that career path. Did you always know you wanted to be a leader in those fields or was there an aha moment? I think it was more an aha moment than uh -huh. it really was this plan. Initially, I thought I was going to law school uh -huh. and I remember being in college um, writing a paper for a conference and I ended up visiting um, the University of Texas at Austin's Law School to go to their library. And I remember some students coming up to me and saying, it's a Saturday. Look at us. Look at all the work that we're doing. You don't want to do this. And <laughs> it had such an impact on me that I was like, they look miserable. Uh -oh. I don't know if I really want to do this kind of work. Mm -hmm. um, and initially, I wanted to do constitutional law. I wanted to look at how I could help people around issues like civil rights. And what happened was... In my college um, days, I was doing a lot of programming on campus, kind of helping with student activities. Mm. And that was the thing that got me interested in leadership and, and serving. Mm -hmm. So I really didn't have this plan of, oh, I'm going to, you know, end up in this space where I'm teaching or I'm, you know, helping with philanthropic efforts. Because at the time, there really wasn't a career path for that. So it was something that I just ended up being a part of because of volunteering and people watching my work and giving me opportunities to move into the space. Mm. It's um, it's interesting. Law is an interesting one. I, I can imagine, I can relate. I, I've seen what people carry around who practice law, like 
the piles and piles of books and it's not yes. it's not attractive to me um and volunteering is also an interesting one I've done a lot of volunteering in my life and it's it's certainly always exposed me to really amazing opportunities I've done some foreign aid work in Indonesia um and I wow yeah yeah um I think uh, you know, I think volunteering can be really life-changing and can really uh, shape who you are. And it does. I mean, you get to, as you mentioned, you have these experiences that you would otherwise not have exposure to. And having that opportunity in college helped me to see, you know, people that were struggling and not having access to resources. And I felt like with my experiences and and some of the skills that I had that I could actually try to change things and make them better. I knew that I wasn't going to be able to, you know, do it for everyone, but in the space that I could enter, I thought it could be a real opportunity to bring, you know, creativity and innovation and and do some really good meaningful work. So it's interesting it sounds as though you've really sort of carved out a career path that didn't really exist until you you came along. Um, and I, I have to admit, though, when I've read your bio, I felt a bit intimidated. You're an incredibly qualified Aww. woman. You've achieved a lot. You've achieved so much and given so much back to the world and you received some very prestigious honours. Can you share with us perhaps some of the highlights or proudest moments of your career uh, to date? You know, my proudest moment, this is going to surprise you, is really not the career piece. Yeah. Um, it, it's my daughter. Oh. I have been so proud. My daughter is 21. She is the best thing that has ever happened to me because she's the one that helped me get laser focused um, about the work that I wanted to do. I wanted her to be able to see as a young girl that she could put her mind to anything and there would be obstacles, but she could do what she wanted to do. And I remember I was working on my PhD and she was in elementary school and we would do homework together. And it was so neat to talk to this kid about the things that I was learning and breaking it down. And she's giving me advice and feedback and watching her now as a young woman who's about to graduate from college and hearing her talk about, well, mom, I can do that. Well, mom, I don't wanna do this. And looking at her compared to some of her peers, she has such imagination and she doesn't see limits. And I think a lot of that has been because she saw her mom do things that a lot of people would have said, well, you're in your forties getting a PhD. You've got a kid at home, you're working full time. And to be able to see what it's done for her, that to me is the biggest achievement. I've been you know, very fortunate in my job to see the impact of the work in some of the people and organizations I've worked with. And that makes me excited. But my kid is the best thing because that's the possibility for me is what I've learned. I'm transferring that to her. And then she's taking that and combining it with what she's learned and who she is. And I'm excited for the future because of this kid. Wow, it sounds like you have a very um, an amazing relationship with her. 
I do. I'm very fortunate. It's not to say that there aren't challenges because, you know, your kids have their ideas about life and what they want to experience. And what I've learned is you move your role as a parent into becoming more of a coach and then into a consultant. Mm. So you're giving advice, but the role changes and there may be things that you don't always agree with, but you love your kids through those situations. And then remember that when you were young too, you did some dumb things and made decisions that weren't always the best, but you learn from those. And our job is to love and support them and give them advice and guidance and hope that they, you know, make the best decisions for them. You know, I have a similar story. I have a very close relationship with my maternal grandmother. Um, my mum is also a very strong woman. She she works very hard. She's an icon to me. But also my, my grandma was a, a medical pioneer in her field of allergy research. And oh, wow. yeah, and she was someone who I, we lived under the same roof as my grandparents for a while. And um, she was a very, well, she is, she's a very strong, strong woman, strong willed, strong, like strong, opinionated. Um, and I really learned a lot from her about um, just how a woman could be, do whatever she wanted, really be quite unstoppable. And now it's, it's interesting. Now she's, she's 94 now. And, um, wow. she's learning from me cause I've just started doing my PhD. So she reads some of my PhD material when I write things and she's like, that's really interesting and very complicated. And I'll say, yes, grandma, it's a PhD. It's actually meant to be pretty complicated. Um, but Yes, we have, a, you know, we have a very close relationship and we learn things from each other. So it sounds similar to you and your daughter. Yes. And I'm so excited you're getting the PhD because I think for a lot of women, it's easy to get intimidated by it and think that, oh my goodness, it's so hard. And it is a lot of work, but I think it is one of the most rewarding experiences. It's not necessarily the degree. That's great. But you learn so much about yourself and your limits and who you are as a person by going through that process. So I'm excited that you're doing that. And we need more women's voices in these spaces. And so congratulations to you for doing this. I'm so excited. Uh, I'm excited too, and I'm, but I'm getting a, a little bit overtired with all of the reading and things like that. But Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't pick up a book after I finished my PhD, and I hate to say this, but I didn't pick up a book for maybe two or three years after going through it. I had read so much that I was like, I don't ever want to see another book yeah. or article as long as I live. I had the exact same experience when I did my master's. After I did my master's degree, I couldn't look at a book for about a year. Um, it took me that that long to get through my master's to to get over it and to then, okay, I think I'm ready for a PhD now. So I'm interested to hear, I'm very interested to hear about your current work as the Vice President of Community Affairs for the State Fair of Texas, and you're responsible for grant making, educational programming, and community initiatives. What does that role involve, and what does a day in your, your life look like? So I recently left the state fair okay. um, to do my own thing, but I would love to share with you about that role because when I took the position, 
um, six years ago, it did not exist. And the state fair is massive. It sits on 200 plus acres. It's 24 days of all these different activities and performances and football games. And we usually have about 2.3 million visitors. And within that 24 day period, the organization can easily make, you know, 56 million plus dollars. So it's a massive entity. So, you know, most people just saw the fair and didn't realize all these community events. There's the scholarship program, there's the Big Tech's urban farm that grows all these fruits and vegetables and gives them out in community. But my role was to come in and really make sure that we were working closely with the local neighborhood and some of the proceeds from the event were used to give out as grants in the community. So I came up with the criteria for the grant making and I learned a lot of lessons that one, sometimes it's easy to think we know what people need, but it's important to listen. Mm. And so I spent a lot of time going around the community and listening. And it could have been easy for me to go, well, I've worked in this area before. I know people and then come up with what I thought. But it was important to collaborate and make sure that we were including the people who had the lived experience to speak into what the process looked like. And it was amazing for the, the time that I was able to work with community members. It wasn't just giving them the money from the fair, but it was also serving as this partnership broker to connect them to other resources and watching these organizations that were small, mid-sized grassroots nonprofits flourish um, because of not only the money, but the technical assistance and the trainings. And then I do all these convenings where I bring these groups together so that they can build their social capital. Um, it was a fascinating opportunity to be able to come in and build something from, you know, nothing into um, a, a really amazing um, department. And there were um, an, a lot of signature programs that we were able to create to help small businesses, to work with our local high schools and helping students think about going to college. And so it was really comprehensive beyond just giving out money, but really making sure that we had supports for the local community to thrive. That so now I am doing consulting. Let me say that, that all uh, these experiences, I'm now working full time for myself and using that to help a health system, working with some other larger entities to think about ways in which they serve in the community. Interesting. I must say, I found it very fascinating to hear you sharing about how the grant making process works, because I've been on the opposite side where I've worked in the nonprofit sector and I've been involved in organisations that have had to apply for grants and funding and sponsorship from different uh, different organisations, different philanthropic um, entities. And I haven't done a lot of grant applications myself. I've only done a couple, but I've, I've, there's a real art to them. Um, yes. But I think it's really nice for me to hear that you say it is a collaborative process and that it's really important for the people giving the grants to listen to what people are saying um, because I couldn't agree more with you. I think it's it's really important and it can be a little bit um, 
uh, off-putting, if, you know, you feel like you're applying for grants and you don't get the feedback or, you know, you don't really know why you might have missed out on one, you, you, you know, it can be a bit of a mystery. So you've demystified it for me. Thank you. Well, and, and to your point, one of the things that I made sure was that we gave feedback to those organizations so they knew, you know, where they went wrong. And it could be things as simple as they didn't know how to measure their work or articulate mm. how they were moving the needle. And sometimes it was just there was only so much money to go around. They had a great application, but there may not have been enough money to give to all the different groups that applied. I think it's important to let people know. So that they're not, like you said, feeling like it's a mystery Yeah. because there is an art to doing that. It's yeah. an art and a science to writing grants. Yeah. But I think it has to be in partnership between the nonprofit and those donors to make sure that they are working in sync to serve better. Mm. Well, now I'm a PhD student. I'll be looking at grant grant applications for my own study and, and hopefully field trips. So... Um, that's good advice for me to hear. So you're also passionate about networking and forging partnerships. What do you think it takes to forge a successful, sustainable partnership? And I, I'll just let you know, I've done some study around the, the art of diplomacy. So I sort of know that there's a, a bit of an, it's an art and it's a science um, in, in terms of that that sort of area of negotiating, but partnerships is something that's different. So what's your take on, you know, what makes a good or a successful partnership? I think the same thing that applies in business or nonprofits applies in your intimate relationships. If you want a relationship to work, you have got to be willing to listen mm. and you have to be willing to know what the other person needs and what they desire and what they want. And I think those principles, you know, whether it is with our intimate relationships or with our children or, you know, and trying to get two organizations to get together, it's so important to make sure that you are creating a win-win situation mm. and making sure that everyone benefits. You may not be able to get all of your needs met, but it's making sure that there's consensus and awareness around what's important. I've been able to bring together large um, coalitions. Right now, I'm working with a group where it's it started off with 10 organizations and we're now at over 100. And part of the success of that is making sure that people are communicating regularly and that they're getting information so that they don't feel left out and that they are a part of the decision-making process. And it's hard when you have that many voices, but it's important to make sure that everyone feels that they're valued, that they're heard, that they matter. And I think if you keep that at the forefront of building those relationships, whatever relationship it is, I think you can have some level of success because it's not always about you. It, it's about how do we do this in mm -hmm. a way that gets our needs met and accomplished. And when that's at the forefront, you can make a lot of magic happen. Mm. Very, very interesting. And actually not too dissimilar to diplomacy. I guess diplomacy is the art of a particular type of relationship and um 
what I've learned about that is you have to be willing to know what you're dead set on achieving and keeping and what you're willing to let go. Uh, and yes, absolutely, absolutely. Communication is a, a two-way exchange. You have to exactly. have to be willing to listen to what the other person's priorities and needs are. Yes. And, and it's being aware of your, as you said, I, I say this even to young women, it's knowing what your non-negotiables are. Yeah, I think a lot of times we walk into relationships and whatever kind of relationship, even when it's applying for a job. And if you don't have definite ideas about your own expectations, then you open yourself up to taking anything because you haven't established your boundaries. And that's why when groups are getting together, having those formal agreements are so important so that we know what to expect from one another. And when that doesn't happen, then we create the space for us to talk about it and communicate to see how we can solve that issue. Mm, uh, Definitely. So another area you're clearly passionate about is advocating for and raising the voices and profiles of diverse women. Can you share with us a bit about why that is important and meaningful to you? What kind of change do you hope to see made? You know, there is a organization that I co-founded in Texas called Heritage Giving Circle. And it's a group of Black women um, who have come together to pool their money to make sure that organizations that are led by Black women have access to resource. There is a study that showed that 0.6% of all funding or donations in this country go to organizations led by black women, 0.6%. And so what we found was a lot of these women are running organizations, but they're having to go into their own resources to be able to support their communities and, and make sure that people have, you know, whether it's diapers or clothing stores, they weren't getting the support that they needed from the philanthropic community. And so we started this to take our money and help these organizations, but also provide them with mentoring and leadership circles to cultivate these leaders so that they could also go to the next level. So for me, it's always been about how do we make sure that we're amplifying the voices of people that typically are marginalized and don't have access. I think when we don't bring those voices to the table, we're missing out on opportunities Um, for innovation, but we're also not being aware of our own blind spots. And when we bring difference into the room, it allows us an opportunity to get a perspective that we aren't usually aware of because it's not our lived experience. And so I'm really committed about making sure that women, particularly diverse women, have access to spaces that they typically may not even be aware of and it, it really goes back to this idea of mentoring. <clears throat> so it's not just creating the space, but I often say to young women, you want to make sure that you are mentoring and helping other women and being a door opener for them. But it's also doing the sponsorship piece. It's saying the names of people, even when they're not in the room, that you're opening up opportunities for them. For the world to change, we all are going to have to be very committed and determined to make sure that we are creating spaces for other people to occupy. I think sometimes we feel like there's power being lost when we allow someone access. And the reality is 
it opens up even more opportunities for us when we're willing to give because we're learning from those people. Now we have advocates and allies that can also support us because we supported them. And it can be a very rewarding experience when we look beyond just our needs and begin to start seeing how this ripple effect can really make such an impact in our communities when we are willing to to bring others in. Mm, So interesting what you say, and I completely agree with you on the point about diversity is really necessary to for innovation and to create change. Um, but I, I also just wanted to say I've never actually heard of a, of a giving circle. Is it something that can be found in uh, other all parts of the world? Yes. Oh, my goodness. There's an organization called Philanthropy Together that actually helps groups start giving circles. And what it is, it's usually it's women. It's a group of women who get together and say, you know, for us, our members pay either $500 a year or $1,000 a year, and they give it monthly. They just, you know, put a little bit in every month, and then we take that pool of money, and then we distribute it out in our community. We have a process, and then the whole group votes on who they want to give the money to. So it's not like the president is voting or, you know, we as the co-founders are the only decision-making uh, group. It's all of the members. And so our um, first she- a year, well, I'll say this, from 2017 until um, last year, we have raised over $100,000 of our own money um, to give out into community. And so it says that when people come together, and it doesn't have to be huge sums of money, women can make a difference in their communities just by pooling their resources together to to be able to help those who may not have access. Hmm. It's so, so interesting how you make a point about, you know, it's it's often women coming together. I think women are very often on the front lines of helping others and giving back in, in communities and at home. Um, yes. It's not to detract from what men might be doing, but I think it's there is a lot of giving and a lot of um, selfless giving, you know, unpaid work that gets done by women. Um, so that's an incredible thing that you're doing or you've been involved in. So um, my hat goes off to you, my virtual hat. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. So, look, another thing you have expertise in is academia. You have a PhD from Antioch University in Leadership and Change, and you're currently an adjunct professor at Tulane University in the Masters of Public Administration program, teaching governance, leadership and sustainability. So as we've touched on, I'm currently doing my PhD at Sydney University um, in the field of human rights. And, you know, I'm, I'm very keen to pursue a career in academia. And I would like to know from you, you know, what do you think it, it takes to kind of forge a career in academia? What, what sort of pearls of wisdom could you share with me about this? One of the things that I did not know is the power of writing. If you can really start writing articles and getting them in journals, Mm -hmm. that really helps your ability to move into academic spaces, especially if you want to teach full-time and become tenured. I'll never forget one of my professors told me, he said, you're going to have a really hard time with getting tenured 
because you've got to do more publishing in journals. Most of my writing is what I call secular writing that is in you know more mainstream publications. But my advice is to start writing, work with your professors to write articles that you co-publish together, speak at conferences, um, yeah. do white papers and case studies, because that is going to be the thing that opens the door for you to teach. And then if there are opportunities to do you know, workshops or even do, you know, some adjunct at, at a place um, and, and begin to get in that space to build your um, knowledge and credibility. That's important too. But the writing piece and making sure that you're getting out there and showing your le- your, your scholarship rather um, is going to be critical. And I wish I had known that a lot sooner because you're not really taught that you're more focused on getting the dissertation written and you're not thinking about the power of um, writing journal articles and using your professors to work with them if they're doing research, how you can partner with them and get your name as a co-author on an article. So definitely when there are conferences, see if you can present you know, a white paper or talk about some of the research that you've done, because now you're building a community in um, your field. Mm, You know, I've heard this. (laughs) I have heard that I, you know, I need to start writing. I am pretty early in my PhD. I've just started this year. And so I'm in my first semester, Um, but I'm certainly very keen. I love writing. I have had things published and I've been featured in the media quite a bit through my nonprofit work. So it's something I really am passionate about. Um, so I'm definitely keen to start doing that once I get my head a little bit more around my topic and definitely speaking at conferences. I'm not afraid of a microphone, as you can probably tell. Yes. <laughs> so you shouldn't have a problem at all. It it should be a breeze for you. I think it's just a matter of identifying those conferences, you know, and if they're scholarly organizations that you can join and and become a part of that are doing work in human rights, you already have such a foundation that I don't see that being a problem for you at all. Oh, thank you. (laughs) You've made me feel good, slightly, (laughs) slightly scared about how much more work I need to do, but also thank you. That's, that's very sound advice to hear. So what advice would you have for women and people of all genders out there who may want to commence a career like yours. And as we touched on earlier, your your career path didn't really exist until you came along. Yes. You know, I I think it's important to be true to yourself and and what you love. Mm. Um, It's important to pay attention to your passion and your purpose. And I am a firm believer that your gifts will make room for you. And so my daughter makes fun of me. She says, you know, people pay you to come in and work with people and talk to them and solve their problems. And years ago, I would have never thought that there were opportunities where people really want you to come in and give them advice using your experience to help make communities better. So, you know, my advice is, Find what you love, put your head down and do the work, um, build a body of work, 
And sometimes we get so fixated on titles and money and not to say that money isn't important. You need food to eat and a place to stay. But what sense does it make to take something that gives you so much money and you're miserable and you find yourself so stressed and discouraged because you're doing work that you don't feel led to do? So I think that there is a way that you can do great work fulfill your purpose and your passion and still make a living and and enjoy your life. And I think the more that we create these spaces to do that in, um, and I love that you're seeing more companies now going to four-day work weeks um, so that people really get a chance to explore their lives beyond spending time just working because there's more to us than that. And I would also say that sometimes your purpose isn't always in your job. And that's okay. Because when you're young in your career, you're just trying to make a living. Mm. So don't get frustrated that you're not doing it because it took me some time to get my groove, so to speak, and get in this space. So be okay with knowing that it may not show up immediately, but that doesn't stop you from volunteering. And it doesn't stop you from connecting to people that are in those spaces and building mentors and getting sponsors and having those relationships. So when those opportunities do open up, those people can say, hey, this person needs to be in this role. So build the groundwork, know that it takes time. But don't get frustrated if you're not able to do it immediately. That's very, very sound advice. And I think, you know, that touching on the topic of purpose, I'm someone who has changed career paths quite a few times. And if you had told me even two years ago that I'd be doing my PhD now, I probably would have punched you. You know, I would have, <laughs> I wouldn't have, I would, would have thought, what, um, you know, I've worked in the corporate field, I've worked in the media, I've worked in the nonprofit sector. Um, and I think you can, your purpose or your sense, your, what your passion is, can also change as you grow and you mature and you get older. Agreed. And, and it does. And I think people need to be okay with that because life changes and different variables in your life change. And as you learn more about you and grow, be open to the possibility that you, you're you going to change and, and what interests you will change. And that's not a bad thing. No, it's not. So here's a question I ask all of my guests. As this is a feminist radio segment and podcast, I'd like to ask how feminism has been a part of your journey. And I'm an intersectional feminist, so I believe feminism is about um, equality for all, not just women's rights. I completely agree with you. You know, my daughter, when she was very young, made a comment about she wasn't a feminist, she was a womanist, because she saw quite often in the feminist movement that women of color and um, trans women weren't always included in the space and even men who wanted to be allies and advocates. And so I think it's important to um, have a lens that is all inclusive and understanding the journey of women. And although it may be different um, for some that we have to be very aware of the different lived experiences that people have as, as women. And so for me, what I, I hope that the movement will continue to do is what you're focusing on 
is making sure that we bring all these different voices and lived experiences to the table and recognizing that men are going to be important in this movement. We can't do any of this work in isolation and we need everyone um, to be at the table and being okay with differences of opinion. Um, so often what I've seen in the movement is if people don't agree with the same um, stance, then we tend to alienate in other people. And it takes multiple ways and directions uh, to get to the answer. And, and that's okay. Mm. I really like what you say about um, acknowledging um, potentially people whose opinions are different to yours. I've been doing a lot of reading at the moment about um, human rights, as I mentioned, and Article 19 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and the um, ICCPR, um, which is everyone's entitled to freedom of thought and freedom of expression and opinion. Um, so it doesn't mean you have to like someone else's uh, opinion or what they think. Um, but just remember that everyone's entitled to have that. Um, and listening to someone who's, who has a different perspective, you know, even if you don't agree with them, can sometimes, you know, teach you something new. It's getting out of this space of it has to be either or. Yeah. That's a dangerous space to be in. I think we need to begin to start recognizing that multiple realities exist at the same time and embracing this both and. Mm. And it's a level of arrogance when we think that it's only one way. Yeah. It may work for us, but that doesn't necessarily mean for the next person that that is their actual experience or that it would work for them. Mm -hmm. Yes. Amen, sister. <laughs> <laughs> I'm giving you a high five right now. <laughs> <laughs> so one final question. Where can my listeners find you, follow you, and connect with you if they want to support the amazing work that you're doing and find out more about your consulting work? So feel free to plug your website, any social media profiles, and anything else you'd like to hear. So Instagram, it's at Dr. Francois, F-R-O-S-W-A. On Twitter, it's at Francois. I'm on Facebook. It's my whole name. And then my website is drfrancoisbooker.com. So you can find me because my name is so unique <laughs> that it, it, it's not very difficult to look me up and find me. And I'm very responsive. I love having new friends. And so definitely reach out and follow me and, and let's see how we can make the world a better place together. I love having new friends too. So it's been wonderful talking to you, Dr. Francois. Um, and I certainly applaud all of the amazing uh, work and contributions you've been making. Thank you for having me on the show. I'm very grateful. Well, we have served you another inspiring episode of Feminist Fridays for this week. But before you leave, here's a classic track by Penau called Embrace because today's guest has been all about giving back and embracing partnerships. Mm -hmm.